Welcome, everybody, um, to, to our continuing series on the study of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, if you are new here, uh, welcome, special welcome to you. So glad that you guys are here. I want to warn you up front, though, that we might teach a little bit differently than you're used to. Um, there's a lot of information. There's a lot of information that's going to come your way, a lot of scriptures. I believe, um, we believe as a church to, to lift up the word of God, and that is, that is our number one source for everything that we teach. I try to go scripture by scripture through the word of God and make it clear and make it understandable. I feel that it's not, it's not my job as a pastor necessarily to tell you, here's my opinion on how you should live your life. I think that that's based on trust and relationship, and individually, we should all be doing that for one another, helping to guide and encourage. But as a pastor, I feel my number one job is to take the Word of God and make it clear. Make it clear and plain and understandable. And nowhere in all of Scripture, I feel, is that even most important or any more important than the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's so much misinformation about there. There's so much uh, lacking information. There are people that I talk to who have never studied through the book of Revelation. There are people who have never even read it. There are people who flat out say, I won't read it. I don't want to read it. And the reason is, is because they think that this book is all about judgment and pain and suffering and torment and fire and brimstone and all of those things. Pale horse of death, the grim reaper, all these things come through in this book. And that, I can't change that. That's true. What I can hopefully change is your perception of the reasoning for all this. If you had to take the entire book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 1 all the way through the end, and you had to boil it down to one word. I know it's nearly impossible, but if you had to boil it down to one word, I think that one word would be persevere. Persevere. Hold on. Because we have a promise. We have been promised the way that this ends. We have a place in heaven prepared for us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been promised. You have a place in heaven prepared for you. But while we're here on earth, our job is to persevere. And that's so much more than just hide under a rock until things blow over. Persevere literally means to continue doing the work of Christ while we're here on earth. Continue pushing forward. Continue to be on the offense because the enemy comes at us 24-7 and has from the beginning. So our job is not to just resist that but to push ahead and to take new ground. That's our job as a church. And so that's why I believe the revelation of Jesus Christ is a book of hope. Above all else, it's a book of hope. Knowing that all those years ago, thousands of years ago, when this vision was given to the Apostle John, it was given to him for encouragement. Not to scare him. Not so he can go back to everybody and it's a scared straight kind of a thing. It's to encourage us that our God is sovereign and he knows and has always known the things that we are going to go through as a people. The things that were going to come our way and he has equipped us to stand against those things. So I think it should be a book of hope, an encouraging book, and I hope you see it that way. If you've missed any of our series along the way, I know we have people that have been on vacation, people that have been doing all kinds of amazing things all over, and then some new people. We do podcast our, our audio version of our messages, so you can get those through our website, discovercommunity.church, or through Google Play or iTunes. And you might go back and catch up on some of them, because we're in chapter 14, so 14 weeks into it right now. It seems To me, it seems like it's been flying. I, I hope the rest of you think that way, too. Because there's been so much cool stuff that we've gone through. This is also the only book of, of the entire Bible. It's the only book of the entire Bible that in chapter 1, it's the third verse, but it says, Blessed is he who reads and blessed is he who hears the words of this prophecy and, hear, and heeds the things, heeds the things written in it. Which means not only do you read it and you hear it, 
but you also take it to heart and you let it change you. So that being the case, this might be different if you're new here again, we read through every single word. So you are going to hear, today we're in chapter 14, you will hear every single word of chapter 14 spoken and taught on here in church. And if you go back and listen to the podcast, you will hear every word from the very beginning. We're not skipping anything, especially those parts that are hard or those parts that are debated or confusing. Again, we're going to try and make those clear. So let's get into it. Let's get into it. First of all, I just want to pray for open, open hearts and some revelation. So, Father God, we just thank you, Lord, that your word is here and everlasting and unchanging. You put it down all those years ago to encourage us, to guide us, to give us what we needed to stand against the schemes of the enemy. And as this book shows us, to persevere. And so, Father, I just pray that we would have open hearts and minds to hear what you have for us through this teaching here today. Lord, guide my words, guide our hearts towards you, not in any other direction. Bring us together and have us guided and driven towards you and your truth. Father, we love you, and we raise this teaching, we raise this day up to you, in Jesus' name, amen. So, last week, here's where we are, a quick recap of just last week. Last week, we learned that at this point, by the time we get to this point in the unfolding of the revelation here, and it's a progressive thing. Remember, it kind of goes little by little. As we reach this point, people have been forced on earth to make a choice. You have either been forced to take the mark of the beast, and by taking the mark of the beast, you can buy things, you can sell things. In other words, you can eat and you can survive. Or you've had to make a decision, I'm not going to. You have had to refuse and say, I will not take the mark of the beast. And there are a number of people on earth who will be in that place. They have steadfastly refused. I will not. I will not take the mark of the beast. But those people are suffering because they can't, they can't buy and sell. They can't go to the grocery store and just buy food. They're struggling. And that gives us true meaning to what we're being told here, to persevere. And it's especially powerful when you're faced with those sorts of things to persevere. Now, in regards to the mark of the beast, remember, this mark is going to be some sort of a visible mark. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but it will be a visible mark that people will be able to see and identify. And I truly believe that because if we go back to the reason it's even taken to begin with, remember, the devil has always wanted to be like God. In his deception, his deceived mind, his delusions of grandeur, he's always thought, I can be like God. He wanted to be like God. And so he craves the worship and the adoration that Father God gets. We see the scenes in heaven unfolding in this book of, of thousands, countless angels worshiping. We hear the trumpets and the worship band, the heavenly harps and the worship going on in heaven. We see elders bowing down at the feet of the throne. We see this grand and glorious throne in heaven. We see all these things, and the devil wants that. He wants that for himself. So this mark of the beast isn't going to be some kind of a secret mark that only certain people will be able to see, or you have to put your hand under one of those ultraviolet scanners to see it. It won't be like that because the devil wants to be openly worshipped and adored, and he wants that for himself. It'll be visible. It'll be something that we'll all get to see. But despite all that, despite all those things and being forced to make a choice one way or another, the devil's time is nearing an end. His time where he is running rampant, doing, doing damage to the, to the purposes of God, his time is nearing an end, as is the time for repentance of a rebellious people, of a defiant people, of a deceived people who are left on earth. Those things are nearing an end. So this week, we're going to go into chapter 14. Chapter 14, we are clearly the seven-year tribulation period that we talked about, broken into three-and-a-half-year periods. We are clearly at this point in the second half of that. Okay, so things are very rapidly coming to a close here. 
most everyone on earth left has made a decision at this point. Am I following the Antichrist? Am I taking the mark of the beast? Am I following that? Or am I steadfastly refusing? And am I a follower of Jesus? Most everybody left on earth at this point has made that choice. So in other words, there are very few, if any, innocent bystanders left. Everyone has made a decision at this point. But there will be one last chance for repentance before judgment has to commence. This is where we are here, Revelation chapter 14. It's verses 1 through 20. I'm going to read. I use the New American Standard Version, so if you have that, you can follow along. You can follow along in your translation, but it'll be a little bit different. Otherwise, if you didn't bring a Bible, just listen and just follow along um, and try and picture the imagery as we go through here. Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 20. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation, and tribe, and tongue, and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and springs of waters. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on a cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Wow. Special welcome to visitors. <laughs> Glad you're here. There's so much imagery there. How do you take something like that that just looks horrible and, and terrible, fire and brimstone and judgment and death and and, and blood flowing, how do you take that and make it something that's life-giving? 
How do you take that? Because the whole Bible is God's word for us. And it's encouraging. And it's about a loving, just, good God. It doesn't all of a sudden, in the last book, the last chapter, the last of all this word, it doesn't suddenly switch from good, loving, gracious, merciful God to judgmental, hateful, angry God. It just doesn't work like that. So let's go in and let's take it apart and dissect this and find out what really is going on here and what really is the purpose of it. So let's jump right in. Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. All right, so let's get right into that very first one, Mount Zion. This is the heavenly counterpart to the earthly Mount Zion. Jerusalem was built on that mountain, and sometimes it's just synonymous with Jerusalem. But in this case, this is the heavenly Mount Zion. We know that because Jesus is standing on it. Jesus is the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. He has not come down to earth yet. So he is still in heaven, and we see this precedent for this earthly or this heavenly Mount Zion. Go back to Hebrews 12, 22, where it says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. So we know there's a, a heavenly Mount Zion. This is where we are. The 144,000, remember it goes back to chapter 7, verse 4, where we're seeing that this 144,000 is this core group of, of chosen Jews. Remember, 12,000 from each tribe. And that is a literal interpretation of that. What we see now is it becomes more of a symbolic interpretation, much as the, the number of the beast, 666, remember? 666 is representative of Babylon and Egypt and Rome and all of, the, all of the earthly, worldly kingdoms of it had have existed to that point, kind of being rolled into this one term of Babylon, right? As that represents that side of the story here, we see this group of 144,000 now representing the church made up of all who belong to Christ, okay? And both sides, both sides have the name of their owners written on their foreheads. Okay, so we'll see that at this point. Revelation 14, verses 2 and 3 reads like this. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Okay, first of all, this is where we get that imagery of angels playing harps in heaven. We kind of get that imagery from here. It's the angels who play the harps, not us. So if you're worried about having to learn an instrument when you get to heaven, you won't have to do that. The angels are doing it. But this song, this new song, this is a song of redemption. This is a song of gratitude. And the fact that no one else could understand it, only those who had been pardoned from death, rescued from what was going on here, rescued from destruction. Only they could possibly understand the depth of what this new song is. So where it says no one could sing it, it's probably no one, literally no one could follow along. What they mean is that you can sing the words, but understanding the depth of what this means to you as someone rescued from destruction that's what we can't understand until we have the full vision of what that looks like. And that should be a mirror of what our worship here in the church looks like. When we're worshiping, it should be from a place of gratitude, a place of just, just contrast where I used to be and where I am now, where my destination used to be and where my destination is now. At the very least, that is reason to praise, and that's how that mirrors what's going on here. So, Revelation 14, verse 4 and 5. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. 
These have been purchased from among men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their, in their mouth. They are blameless. In other words, they've resisted the temptations of the flesh. Everything that has come their way, they have resisted those things. They know their shepherd's voice. They belong to him. They have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. These are those people. Revelation 14, 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. I want you to look at that closely. This is an important moment. And I'll be honest with you that the gravity of this moment never really jumped out to me until I was studying and praying about this message. I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on earth. Up until this moment, it was our job to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ on earth. It was our job, individual, one-on-one meetings, spreading the gospel, spreading the love of Jesus, who he was, the gospel message was ours to spread. And our commission was to make sure that everyone heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and had an opportunity. But guess what? We haven't reached everybody. Some of us have neighbors, friends, family members that we still haven't reached. This is important then because at this moment, a loving, merciful God says, I'm going to make one more way. And there will be no chance that somebody is not going to hear. I'm going to have an angel stand up. The first time an angel has, has preached the gospel, he's going to preach to everyone on earth, every tribe and nation and tongue and ear, everyone will hear the gospel message. There's nobody now who doesn't know better. But time is getting short. Time is getting short. So the whole world hears this gospel message, and now they have a choice to make. If they haven't already made it, they have a choice to make. Revelation 14, 7, and he, and he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of waters. The hour has come. The hour of judgment has come. This is literally the last chance. Revelation 14, 8 reads like this. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Remember, Babylon is, is, a, is symbolic of all of these earthly, worldly kingdoms kind of rolled into one. But what this means is that the deceptions and the lure offered by Babylon are going to be in stark contrast to the gospel message that this angel has just preached. It's not going to be there's this and then there's a slightly different shade of this. It is going to be a stark contrast. There won't be any mistaking. And this is a look ahead, by the way, if we go into Babylon the angel is preaching Babylon has fallen. We don't actually see that happen until we get up to chapter 18 where we actually see that. So this is kind of a glimpse ahead into that happening. Revelation 14, verses 9 and 10. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength In the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. In other words, this angel gets rid of any lingering doubt. If there was any question left in your mind, well, did he really say, did he really mean? This angel removes all that doubt. This is also an important moment. Remember, up until this point, All the way through Revelation, when we hear about wrath, when we hear about plagues and tribulation and and mountains falling and plates shifting and the sun darkening and stars falling from heaven and and all all the terrible things that have come the way so far, that wrath of God 
has been corrective wrath. That has been a God trying to correct his people, trying to get through to his people. That corrective wrath, that word wrath previously had translated in the Greek as orge. Remember, orge is, the whole idea is to correct, to instruct and correct through discipline if necessary, but it's all been with a heart to get hearts to turn to him, to offer the lifeline that he offers, to make you see the error of your ways. It's been that, but this is the first time we see that word wrath shifting from orge wrath to thumos. Same word translated in English as wrath, but it is now thumos wrath. That's the Greek word for it, and that means it's punishing. You have made a decision. You have rejected every lifeline I have thrown to you. You have rejected the gospel message spoken by an angel, and you have made the conscious decision to reject it. God's wrath now turns to punishment. But again, even in the midst of that, the saints are told to persevere. Persevere through all of this. If you're left on earth at this point, still persevere. Because remember, in the midst of all this, there are still, there are believers on earth at this point. And they haven't been able to buy or sell, and they're struggling in their lives, but they're being told, persevere, hang on. We jump forward to a glimpse of this final battle to come. Revelation 14, 13 says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Again, if you're on earth at this point, and you're, and you're having a trial, and you're struggling, but you are persevering, God's giving a special blessing to those who die in the Lord from that point forward because it's not easy. You are going through some stuff, but hang on. Keep hanging on because the time is almost there. And it's time for the reaping. Revelation 14, 14 says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. This is the Messiah Jesus Christ, and he has come to harvest. We have an image of what this looks like, and every image that I searched, every painting, every description of this, it looks like this, more or less. This is a peaceful image of Jesus caring for, tending to his field. Now, the, the, the wheat here, that represents us. We'll see more about that here in just a moment. But he's checking and saying, it's ripe. It's time for the harvest. This is what we see going on right here. Now, Jesus gave his disciples a glimpse of this all the way back when he, when he was doing his ministry on earth and his disciples were following him around. He gave them a, a glimpse of this when he taught the parable of the wheat and the tares. Okay, now imagine, think about this. this the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ is being is being dictated to or being the vision is being given to John the Apostle. John the Apostle is, he's in his 90s. He's an old, old man at this point, okay? He's an old man. But now think back to when Jesus was teaching. And when Jesus taught what I'm about to read to you, John was the youngest of the disciples. He was a very young man. Some people even say he was a teenager. And he's sitting with the Messiah. He's been just soaking in all of his words and trying to retain every bit of wisdom that Jesus is giving them. And this is how it's recorded in Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 36 to 40 says, Then he, that's Jesus, left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as far as the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. So imagine now, 
uh, as, a, as a teenager maybe, a young John heard that spoken, and now here he is seeing this vision in the Spirit. He's seeing it unfold. Can you imagine how that would feel? Imagine how you'll feel if you see these things unfold yourself. Revelation 14, 15, and 16. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is Jesus taking a harvest of those who belong to him. The saints, the believers who are left on earth. Now, the 144,000 that we saw back in verse 4, these are the first fruits of the harvest. Okay, Now, Jesus is taking the rest. Those believers who are left on earth. Now, some will argue, some theologians even argue, that we're talking about two different harvests here and that they're both of enemies of the Lord. But I don't believe that's the case. I believe that these, this, this is the, the harvest of the saints who are left on earth, Jesus taking those who belong to him. So now at this point, only the defiant followers of the Antichrist remain on earth. Everyone else is gone. The defiant followers of the Antichrist are left on earth, and they have made their decision. Revelation 14, 17 to 18 says, And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had a sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. Now this passage right here, or two of them, is where we get the idea of a grim reaper. Right? We, we hear this taught about all the time, and we hear it. Mostly what we hear, we take something that's very, very significant, something terrible in the judgment of God that is happening right here, and the way that the enemy has, has made us twist that into something that's fun. It's almost comical. Here are some images that I searched when I searched Grim Reaper. This is a child's costume for Halloween. A Grim Reaper costume. And then the next one, we see this. We see this Grim Reaper as this, this embodiment of evil, right? You probably couldn't look at that and think it's anything but evil. This Reaper is not of Satan. This Reaper is an angel sent by God to do his work. That's not what this Reaper, if you will, looks like. Next one. How about this, the sexy reaper costume? This is how the world has taken this concept that ought to instill in our hearts an urgency to not only make our own decisions, but to make sure that people we know know and are given an opportunity to make the choice. And the world has turned it into this, into this fun thing. Many cultures... Almost all cultures have some sort of a death character, okay? The, the Jewish culture and Islam both have what really amounts to the same uh, death figure. It's an angel called Azrael. And so they kind of share that. So they have one specific. All through Scripture, when we talk about all the way back from Exodus in the, in the Passover uh, story, we see an angel called the destroyer. And then we see from time to time where God uses angels. There is no one specific angel of death. There's no grim reaper. It just doesn't exist. It's meant to be something that is the boogeyman used to scare people and then something to make light of. But this angel, it could be any angel. It's not named but there are several angels who do God's bidding, and from time to time, they are called to do this sort of work. So here we are at this point. Warnings, plagues, judgments, tribulations, all these things have not been successful in turning those people who remain on earth towards Jesus. Those people that are left have chosen their fate. They've made a decision. They have not stumbled into this. 
They haven't accidentally rejected Jesus Christ and his saving grace. There are no more accidents. These people have made the choice. Now, the imagery of this vine, by the way, we see this imagery of the vine all the time, and there's actually three different types of vines that we see in Scripture. There's the vine of Israel, which is really kind of described back in Isaiah 5, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And then we see the vine of Christ in John 15, where Christ himself says, I am the vine, okay? And then now there's the vine of the earth, The vine of the earth is the one that we're talking about here, this one that's about to be harvested. It's the vine of the earth. It represents Babylon and, again, all of of these fleshly, worldly cultures together. This is what's about to happen. Revelation 14, 19. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. A distinct second, second harvest. Okay, these clusters are the enemies of God who are still alive on earth. And again, this wrath is that, is that thumos wrath, that, that punishment wrath. They have chosen their fate. And there must be judgment at this point. Revelation 14, 20, And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. This is a look ahead to what we'll see in chapter 16, two chapters from now, where we see the, the, final, the battle of Armageddon, where we see that. Armageddon is, is taken, it's kind of a, of a mashup of the name for Megiddo, which is where this place happens. It's outside of the city, okay, it says that, presumably to spare the holy city of Israel from battle, from damage, from all this that's going on. But this takes place about 60 miles north of Jerusalem in this place called the Jezreel Valley, okay? And there's a mountain and then thus a plain of Megiddo. It looks like, this is what it looks like today. It looks somewhat peaceful. If you've ever been there, it is kind of a peaceful looking area. And you can see for, you could probably see for at least 100 miles into the distance. It's, it's huge. There's banana plantations and there's all kinds of stuff going on here right now. This is the, the, the remnants uh, of a fortress that was on top of uh, that right there, by the way, is the mountain, uh, Mount Megiddo. When we talk about mountains in Israel, they're not 14ers like we see here, okay? This is what passes for a mountain. And then they have the Jezreel Valley and then this vast plain of Megiddo. This is it. This is the place. Historically, this has been a battlefield throughout history. This is where Barak defeated the Canaanites, This is where Gideon defeated the Midianites. This is where Solomon fought Pharaoh. This is where Greeks, Romans, Crusaders all fought in this place. Napoleon Napoleon himself said that this was the single greatest battlefield that he had ever seen or participated in. So this has historically been a battlefield, contested ground, and Scripture says that blood will fill this valley four feet deep for 200 miles around. <clears throat> that is going to be a scene, and it's awesome to stand there and just picture the scene that's going to unfold. So in the midst of all that, in the midst of thinking about all that, many people ask you as a Christian, maybe you've even asked it yourself, how can a loving God allow people to go through all that? How can a God who loves us allow that to happen? Non-Christians especially will come to you and say, your God is so loving and yet he's fire and brimstone and judgment and all these things. Here's what we need to know. Once the end times begin, once all this stuff that we're reading about and studying begins to unfold, it will be impossible to get your choice wrong. Hear me on that. Nobody is going to stumble in to eternal damnation at this point. You are going to very clearly be given a choice. And if you choose to follow the Antichrist, it is a choice that you have consciously made. You're not stumbling into this. You have been defiant, and you have consciously decided it. It will almost be 
easy, if you will, to make a choice then. Many will make the wrong choice, but it will be much easier. Contrast that choice, the choice you'll be making when this all unfolds. Because you're sitting here saying, if I'm seeing all this happening, I'm dang well making a choice right then and there. Right? Good or bad, right or wrong choice, you're making a choice of some point. Contrast that with today. Think about today. We're warned in Scripture many, many times about deception. I'm going to read four scriptures about deception to you. 2 Corinthians 11.3, this is the Apostle Paul saying this, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. He wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 6, and said, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And then he writes to the Galatians, chapter 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. All about deception. And then this last one from the Gospel of Matthew Chapter 24, verses 3 to 5 says, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, he, Jesus, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. They're asking him, he's just told them all these things are going to happen, and they're saying, when? Tell us, how are we going to know? And he doesn't say, it's the third Tuesday of the month in the year of the... He doesn't say that. What's he say? Beware. Many are going to try and mislead you. So just like Jesus, he's never direct in answering a question, but it makes you think about it. It makes you think about it. In this age, especially our age right now, think about this age of social media that we've got going on right now, where everyone has a worldwide platform to say and pronounce anything they want as truth. Anyone. You think 2,000 years ago, if you, wanted to, if you wanted to be a false prophet, if that was what you wanted to follow as a career path, you, some people did. You had to travel literally thousands of miles on foot around village to village, city to city, spreading your lies and trying to gather a following and trying then that would hopefully it would grow if that's what you were trying to do. But it was, it was down in the trenches, one-on-one kind of work. And so it was very slow to spread and there was plenty of opportunity to think about it, pray about it, get some other opinions, get some other people traveling around. Listen to them. Today, anyone with an internet connection can spread lies as far as they want. I believe it's so much harder today to discern what's truth and what isn't. But Jesus taught his disciples ultimately. He said this, Matthew 7, 13, 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small And the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So my question is, who among us will help the lost of today find the gate? Will you? Whose job is it? Worship team, you guys can go ahead and head on up. Our church, Discover Community Church, somebody asked me, so what kind of church are you? I get that all the time. What kind of church are you? Well, first of all, I say non-denominational, but that doesn't really describe it very much, right? That could be anything. And I started trying to put some words to it, and I came up with this. DCC is a teaching, charismatic, evangelical church. I know that's a mouthful, right? That's not going to fit on a, on a postcard very well. But this is who we are. We learn the Word of God together. We study the Word together so that when deception and lies and false teaching come our way, we can recognize a counterfeit. And my hope is that through all of this, through all of our teaching, everything that we've done, I have instilled in you a hunger to go and study it for yourself. 
Not just come on Sunday and just listen to what I have to say, but study it. Look at it. If nothing else, when you look at a word, you know there's a depth beyond what you're reading. And when the Holy Spirit prods you, you can go in and you can study that further. It's by doing that kind of a discipline that we'll recognize deception when it comes at us. We're charismatic, meaning we believe in and use the gifts of the Spirit in service of Christ, just as the apostles were given those gifts to be able to go out and share the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth. We are given those gifts to serve this body and to go forth as a body and share the love of Christ, share who he is. We use both of those things. We use teaching and we use the gifts of the Spirit to spread the gospel of Jesus in an evangelical way so that no one we know is left defenseless. It's not up to us to make converts. That should take a weight off of your shoulders. It's not our job to hammer away with the gospel until somebody has their come to Jesus moment. It is simply our job to share the love of Christ and to share the gospel of who he is. That's it, and he will take it from there. But I don't want any of my family members, anybody I know, any of my friends, any of you to be left defenseless against the lies and deception of the enemy when the time comes. Amen? So this is our mission as a church. And to quote from a corny movie, will you choose to accept your mission? This is what I'd like you to pray about as we move into our response time. So if you're new here, we take communion at the end of every service, okay? At the crosses, we have juice, grape juice, and bread and gluten-free crackers. And what you do is you just dip in and you can serve yourself or serve your family. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we are called to do this. So you don't have to be a member of the church or anything like that. Just take communion. Up front here, Gabe and I will have it and we have wine and we would love to serve you the same kind of method. But let's do this with with not just remembering who Jesus is, but let's do this in saying, I will answer the call. If you're here on earth, still here, living, breathing today, and most of you look like you are, I would challenge you that that is our mission, and it remains our mission until we're called to heaven, until that time comes. Will you accept your place in the kingdom? Will you accept your mission? Pray about that. And then with a thankful heart that you have everything that you need to accomplish that mission and more, let's take communion together. Amen? Thank you, church. Thankful for 
see how you delivered me in your hands, in your feet. I found my victory. I can see, I can see how you delivered me in your hands, in your feet. I found my victory. I'm thankful for your scars Cause without them I wouldn't know your heart And with all my life I'll tell of who you are So forever I am thankful I'm thankful for your scars Cause without them can see how you delivered me in your hands in your feet I found my victory I can see I can see how you delivered me in your hands and in your feet I found my victory I'm thankful for your scars Cause without them I wouldn't know your heart All my life I'll tell who you are So forever I am thankful for your scars Forever I am thankful for your scars